This is the podcast for Spectrum, the leading source of news and expert opinions on autism research. I'm Cynthia Graber. In this week's episode, we're going to be focusing on the sometimes complementary, sometimes complicated relationship between scientists and parents. This podcast is part of a four-part series of articles on that theme. In one of the stories called The Seekers, journalist Elisa Opar profiled parents who try unproven treatments for their children. Many of these treatments are quite expensive, and some can even be potentially harmful. Ariane Zercher is one of the parents who went down this path for her daughter Emma, who's now a teenager. She tried supplements, restrictive diets, chelation, brain scans, and much more. Ariane, I want to talk to you a little bit about your journey. In the article, you explain how desperate you were to find a therapy for your daughter. How important was it to you that these therapies seemed to have a scientific basis, that the practitioners couched them in the language of science? Well, in the beginning, that was essential. But uh, as time went on, what we came to see more and more, and the more I read, were parents describing what they called recovery or uh, losing the diagnosis was another word phrase that was used often to say that their child, while having been diagnosed with autism, had now, because of whatever they'd done, lost their diagnosis. And so after a while, and that, that really is the dilemma, that here you are as a parent, and you are doing your best to help your child, who is got any number of issues that they're dealing with, many of them physically quite painful. So you see your child writhing on the ground in pain. Well, who isn't going to try to help their kid? You said at the beginning that, you know, when you were first looking into these unproven treatments, the fact that they seemed to be scientific was important. Was there ever a part of yourself that doubted it, where you were kind of having an internal debate about that? Or did you take what they were saying at face value? I doubted, I doubted everything. First of all, when you, when you get the diagnosis, basically you're being told that everything that comes naturally to you, all of your maternal instincts are now wrong. Um, everything that you want to do to help your child is basically, um, you're told, don't do that. So you become incredibly confused and you're also scared you're also being told that these few first few years are absolutely essential and that you have this shrinking time, this window that's rapidly closing. When you were doing research on these treatments, these unproven treatments, when you went to your husband with your research, did he have the same reaction that you did? Was he as open to them as you were? Our styles of um, pursuing this were different. Mine was to read everything thoroughly. So I would read every book that had been published that I could get my hands on, every parent uh, memoir, every research study that I could find. I mean, in those days, we didn't have the kind of access and Facebook wasn't around and there weren't groups of people. You had listservs. And Richard really, his approach was more, I don't want to read the whole thing, just give me the gist. And then if he was suspicious, he would then start making phone calls to you know, Albert Einstein, Harvard, Yale. I mean, he and he would try to find someone to talk to and, and get their opinions. But at the end, you both came to the same conclusion, right? That it was worth trying these out anyway? Yes, but I would say that I was the one who pushed much more 
than Richard. I was sort of with the foot on the gas and Richard was the one with the foot on the brakes. So there were definitely times when he would say, okay, I'm going to do some research. He would talk to various people and he'd say, yeah, we're not doing this. And we would, we would stop. There are a lot of people who have degrees, medical degrees, who are open to all kinds of treatments that are not mainstream. It's important to say that. I mean, if there is something out there, you can usually find someone who is a medical doctor who says, yeah, give it a try. And Alisa, I want to turn to you because you spoke to a lot of parents for this story. You know, listening to what Ariane and her husband went through, how easy do you think it is to discern what's good science amidst all the kind of jargon that the practitioners use? I think that it's incredibly difficult for parents of children with autism. You know, I mean, as Ariane just said, sometimes, often, someone will have an MD behind their name and will be supporting an unproven treatment. Many of the parents that I spoke to told me, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, I don't have any sort of scientific background. And, you know, one woman said that it's all Latin to her. All of this discussion about brainwaves and toxins and all of these physiological processes, uh, it's an entire vocabulary that these parents had no reason to know before, and suddenly there are all of these terms that, they, that are just out there that they are being bombarded with. And I think it's incredibly difficult for them to determine what actually is just based on all of these terms that are being used, uh, what is scientific and what isn't, because so much of it sounds scientific. So, Elisa, in your story, you also write about what the parents did after they chose particular treatments for their children. What happened then? One of the things that I was most impressed with with the parents that I spoke to was just the incredible, incredibly detailed accounts that they made of their children and the treatment that the treatments that they were um, undergoing. Every parent that I spoke to kept a very detailed diary of whatever treatment it was or multiple treatments that their children were taking, as well as any sorts of signs of change, um, just whether it was eye movement or irritability, self-harm. I was, it was just absolutely incredible to me, the, the detailed accounts the parents kept. Obviously, there were no controls. They might have imagined changes because they wanted them to be there. But it seems like the parents you spoke to really approached these questions in what they might have thought of as a scientific manner. Yeah, I mean, parents did take a somewhat scientific approach. Most of the parents that I spoke to took a somewhat scientific approach in that they would start a certain treatment and they would keep a very detailed log of the treatment that was being given and then any potential changes that they saw. So they were looking for changes. But one of the challenges that many of the experts that I spoke to pointed out was the fact that many children with autism um, who are receiving uh, unproven interventions are on multiple treatments at the same time. So one expert that I talked to said that, you know, it's not unusual for him to see kids who are on 10 to 15 different supplements. And when you're on that many different treatments, it's hard to, even if there is some sort of change, that is noted, it's hard to determine what to attribute that change to. Ariane, I want to turn back to you again. When you decided to walk away from these treatments, which you describe in the article as being incredibly expensive, 
and that had the potential at times to even be harmful to your daughter. What reaction did you get from the other parents who were using them? Was there any pushback? Not at all. Um, I, at that point, I was talking to a lot of autistic people who were all incredibly supportive. And that was really the turning point. Um, I just wanted to go back and say one thing about all this stuff, which is there is no scientifically proven treatment for autism in the way that non-autistic people hope for. The only proven treatment is to love your child and accept them and to find autistic adults that you can hopefully form close bonds and relationships with, that your child will be around others like them. That is the only so-called treatment that really is positive and that we can all do. But this idea that there's some sort of magic bullet out there, that if we can just find it, that we're not going to have an autistic kid anymore, it, that's, that's completely false. It doesn't exist. The big problem with all of this is that instead of getting a diagnosis of autism and being told about all the autistic people in the world, you're told about all the horrors that your child is most likely going to face. And so you are put into a, a place of abject fear for your child, who is now maybe two years old. I mean, what parent of a two-year-old isn't going to be absolutely terrified? Would meeting autistic adults, would that have helped prevent you from trying all these unproven therapies? Absolutely. I, if, if one of the people we had seen in all of our time looking had been autistic, that could have changed everything. It wasn't until I met autistic people who are out in the world doing things with doctorates, with medical degrees, with PhDs, teaching a whole variety of careers that they are involved in. If I'd met any one of them and, and been able to talk to them, it would have calmed me so radically and it would have put into question this whole idea that I had been fed up until that point of how this was this horrific life sentence that had been uh, handed to my child. The story that features Ariane Zercher is called The Seekers. In another story in the series, parents try a drug that is being studied medically, and while it's not being studied for autism, it is being studied for symptoms that people with autism experience, such as seizures, and that's marijuana. A third story involves parents who are testing just one treatment at a time instead of the 15 to 20 that Elisa Opar described in her story, The Seekers. These are called N of 1 trials, meaning a treatment is being studied in just one person as opposed to a large clinical trial, and they offer hints to scientists of what might need further study. Finally, a fourth story in the series describes what happens when parents get so involved in science that they spearhead the creation of an entire research center. It's called the Mind Institute at the University of California, Davis. David Amaral is the research director. Dr. Amaral, welcome to the Spectrum podcast. So the Mind Institute sounds fascinating to me. It's a really interesting collaborative center. And I want to talk to you a little bit about this balance between parents and scientists because the Institute was founded by parents of children with autism. Do you have a sense of how much of the research on autism there is initiated by the parents' interests and how much originates with the scientists? Well, there's been a history to uh, the parent involvement at the Mind Institute. In the early days, they had uh, the founding parents had the vision 
of integrating uh, clinicians and basic scientists into one institute. And we really tried to implement that vision early on. In terms of the actual research agenda, they had the feeling that autism is a biomedical uh, disorder, that their children had problems with the immune system, uh, had other health issues like sleep disorders, and they wanted us to ensure that we incorporated that perspective into our research portfolio. So in the early days, uh, there were a lot of discussions with them about how we could try and implement that portfolio. And over the years, as they became more and more comfortable with us, and as we uh, got closer and closer to their vision, I think uh, their direct influence has decreased, although I think we still honor that initial vision. So do parents still then come up with ideas for research? And if so, can you talk me through the process of how that might work? Oh, sure. Uh, not necessarily the original founding families because uh, their children now are in their 20s and uh, they have a number of other issues that they're working on, like long-term care and support of their children. But the Mind Institute constantly is recruiting families into our research program. And, you know, some of those families actually get quite involved uh, with uh, providing us with suggestions. Um, one example is a family in the Bay Area that is very interested in epigenetic uh, factors in autism and transgenerational epigenetic factors and brought the idea that we should have a symposium on that topic. And a couple of years back, uh, we actually did have a, a symposium. And, and the whole notion that there can be epigenetic factors that go from the grandmother to her daughter and then on to the granddaughter has taken on, I think, uh, a much greater in, uh, interest in the field of autism research because of that initial symposium that we had. So there's lots of ideas uh, that come to the Mind Institute. I know that I receive emails and phone calls from families, not only in the, in the uh, Sacramento area where the Mind Institute is, but actually from all over the country. And of course, you know, some ideas are uh, really good. Some ideas are probably ideas that have already been discussed and dismissed, but we're always open to new input from the families. Again, the reason that this is so important is because the families are living with individuals with autism on a daily basis, and they get insights that researchers who only get to meet individuals with autism on a periodic basis may not actually see. And you mentioned that some of the ideas might have already been addressed or dismissed. And so what happens if you or other scientists listen to a parent's question and then decide not to pursue it? How is that handled? Right. Well, I think what the parents want is an honest response. So at least my own uh, perspective has been that that we listen, we can talk about the scientific data on a topic, and then if it's a topic that we don't think merits additional attention, uh, we just are honest with the, the families and, and tell them. And, you know, I think the families want that honest discourse. Even with some of the founding families that we, you know, continue to interact with, uh, we've had disagreements over what is most important to pursue. But 
we uh, agree to disagree and, and we move forward. What if a parent suggests lines of research that clearly aren't scientific? Does the parent ever become angry if scientists don't pursue it? Well, I, I'm, I'm not sure if angry is the right word. I think there's been some heated debates. And, you know, I uh, understand that they're looking for the fastest possible treatment for their, their child. And sometimes, you know, it, it ranges. I think that there, unfortunately, there have been treatments that have been uh, proposed that are really unscientific. And, um, you know, I feel that we have to protect uh, the families by being quite forceful in, in suggesting that the treatments really don't show any benefit and that they, uh, you know, really it's a waste of their money and time. To kind of flip the scenario, what happens if there's a line of research instigated by a scientist that bothers or even offends one of the parents who are perhaps more involved with the research center? Has that happened? Uh, I don't actually know of a time that that's happened, no. Interesting. You know, uh, let me let me just flesh that out a little bit. I think... I think the parents may question the proportionality of research effort. So I know, for example, that many parents are um, annoyed that so much funding is going into genetics rather than into things like um, immunology. But I, I've never met a parent that would say, well, you know, genetics isn't important at all. We shouldn't be doing it. I think that they think that there has been enough effort put into genetics at this point in time. And, and so, you know, there, there's a perspective that maybe we should be putting more funding into different aspects of research. And again, that's an ongoing debate. But I, I've never actually had a parent say that a line of research that either we or uh, somebody else at a bona fide university or institute have started that they've said, I don't think that this should be done. That that has not occurred. What are the challenges and the benefits in kind of navigating this type of parent-scientist relationship? Let me first say that I don't think I would be in autism research if it hadn't been for the parents. I think that one of the most important things that the parents have done over the last 20 years has been to infect a number of basic scientists with this very deep desire to understand this complicated disorder. You know, I think on, on balance, there has been only benefit of having the parents involved. I, I really think that research on autism would not have undergone the renaissance that it has over the last 20 years had it not been for parents. It is the case that most of the parents that we deal with are not scientists, and they really don't understand the scientific process. So I, I can relate one example of, of when uh, one of our founding parents uh, heard about a paper that was published that was completely against his thinking on the particular topic. And he called me up and he was uh, furious that this paper had been published and thought that the field would take this as dogma. And it took a while for me to explain to him that, you know, this was only one paper, that it would have to be replicated. And if it wasn't replicated, it'd go the way of so many other papers and studies that haven't been replicated. And people basically would dismiss that idea as well. And that science is a cumulative process that builds and builds and, and, and something only becomes scientific fact or 
or a closer scientific fact uh, after it's been uh, replicated over and over again. So there, there is a process, a two-way process of the scientist having to explain to the family members how science takes place. And that is an ongoing process that, that doesn't stop. Even the tension when they've existed between the, the family members that we've had at the Mind Institute and the scientists ar arise, I think it's a good process because it forces to evaluate whether we are doing the right science and and then you know forces us to be able to explain it in a way that is understandable to the community who are going to benefit ultimately we hope from what we're doing. That was David Amaral, research director of the Mind Institute at the University of California Davis. Kat McGowan is a contract editor for Spectrum who edited the four articles in the series. She worked closely with the four writers. Kat, what is it that ties these stories together? What do they offer to the world of autism research? What we'd really hope is that people who would read these stories would develop a deeper sen sense of empathy, whether that's researchers for families or families for researchers, and understand how people share the same goals but might not always use the same language or go about it the same way. To me, one of the greatest things about these stories is that they show the different ways in which a very similar intention and goal, which is to improve the symptoms, you know, the more troubling symptoms of autism, um, takes different form in the hands of different people. You know, research often seems to happen in this ivory tower really far away from ordinary people's lives, but it actually has a huge influence on their lives. And people engage with it. It's not an all or nothing thing. It's not that people either go the conventional medicine route or they go alternative. People have all kinds of different relationships to the way research is done. And it's not just something that's top down. I mean, more and more you see this. You see people taking hold, ordinary people learning about how scientific research works, doing their own research, um, documenting symptoms in their own children. It, it's becoming more of a bottom up and top down process that feeds in both directions. And, and that it's sort of those, those trends that we were really interested in trying to capture some of the dynamics going on there. This was the podcast for Spectrum, the leading source of news and expert opinions on autism research. To read the articles discussed in the podcast, among others, visit spectrumnews.org. I'm Cynthia Graber.